Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the public option podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 15th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Mesa Baradaran from the University of Georgia Law Faculty. She currently serves as a J. Alton Hosh associate professor and teaches contracts and banking law. Professor Baradaran's scholarship includes the Harvard University Press book, How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and the Threat to Democracy. Folks, believe the reviews. It's really that good. Big welcome to the pod, Mesa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So, as I mentioned before, uh, when we chatted, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's a, it's a splendid piece of work. It's informative and highly readable. For the two or three listeners who haven't read it, could you just sort of quickly take us through the moving pieces of your narrative? So, uh, the, the premise of the book is that there has been this history in specifically the United States, but I would uh, broaden it, but I'm going to stick with the U.S. for now. But, you know, ever since the beginning of, you know, bank state relations, we've had this quid pro quo or this social contract with the banking system where, you know, they, uh, you know, in, implicit in uh, the, the whole enterprise of banking is this government. Um, well, it's this, it's this idea of trust, right? We have to trust the banking system for it to work. And the only way that the banking system has been able to get this trust from the consumers and the, the market is through some sort of government uh, help, whether that was through charter, chartering restrictions, um, geographic restrictions this is before the New Deal, post-New Deal, lots of things, right? The Federal Reserve, FDIC protection, etc. And so there's this idea that banks, if they get too risky or they get too big and powerful, that's a, a damaging to uh, the democracy and society. Um, but if they can stay small um, and less powerful, we really need them to be the engines of growth and lend and grow credit and all of this. Um, and so we have this sort of tension in the banking sector, and we've resolved it in every era in different ways. And, uh, and you know, sometimes there was mistaken uh, 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 sort of detours here. Andrew Jackson decided that banks were evil and he shut down the National Bank. And you know, that, that ended up being problematic and some say even caused the Great Depression, you know. And then, you know, p- perhaps Thomas Jefferson was wrong that all banks needed to be small. Um, but, you know, that lasted for 200 years and that was inefficient. But the point wasn't that he cared about bank profits. The point was that he wanted to create a banking system that was most democratic and, and spread capital, uh, you know, to, to all citizens. And and at some point in the 19 sort of 70s and 80s, in this sort of conservative revolution or neoliberalism, call it what you will, um, that thinking about the banking system changed fundamentally from this idea of what kind of banking system do we need uh, for, for the best kind of society to how can the government stay out of banking to make it the most profitable and efficient system possible? Now, there, the banking system was definitely due for a revision of its social contract, right? Some of the Great Depression era regulation were becoming outdated. And so we certainly needed to have a conversation about, okay, well, is you know our interest rate caps useful in an era of inflation? Do we really care about geographic restrictions now that we've got the internet and globalization? But somehow in that conversation, the uh, we sort of breached the social contract and we just sort of let banks go. And then we saw this, you know, what happened in 2008 
2008 is, all right, you wanted to be part of the market system. And part of that meant that you had market discipline, but we weren't willing to do it. And, and we weren't willing to because that's always been implicit in banking is that we need banks and we need them to be stable. And so it wasn't this sort of corporate um, you know, uh, conspiracy that we bailed out banks. It's just what happens. That's we, any, any government in any era, if they can bail out their banking system, will do it. And so I think right now it's time to have that conversation to say, okay, well, in the event of future banking collapse, we will again come to bail them out because we need banks to, for our society to function. How then should we structure our banking system such that Every member of our society can access the benefits of banking, which are credit and financial services, et cetera. That's the the, the big sort of theoretical premise um, of the book. And then I talk uh, specifically about some of the problems with um, the current banking system, specifically stratification of there's you know two banking systems. Uh, one I say is for the middle class and the wealthy um, and those able to afford it, and that is a government sub- subsidized, well regulated system. The other is this you know, Wild West hodgepodge of payday lenders and fringe lenders who basically, you know, don't have that much government regulation and charge the maximum interest rates allowable by law. Um, and, and that causes a problem because those who are at the bottom have to pay the most um, just to use their money. And they certainly pay sort of astronomical rates um, for credit. So I, I go through how that happened. Um, specifically, you know, that we had these banking charters, a credit union, the SNL, community banks, and those couldn't survive the competitive environment of the 1980s, and they all um, collapsed under the weight of, you know, deregulation. Um, and I suggest, look, we're, we keep coming back to this idea that in order to help the poor access financial services, it has to be through this community banking model. And, and my view is that we need to rethink that model. We don't live in Thomas Jefferson's world or even George Bailey's world anymore. And um, we live in a, a globalized system. And so it's time to think about a national, as you said, public option. And so I suggest one way to do this, and it's not certainly, it's not the only way, but one way to do this is have the post office um, become involved again. And and the reason I think this makes a lot of sense is one, because the post office is national subsidized, you know, uh, connected to the federal government. So a lot of reasons, economies of scale and scope, etc. But also because the post office used to do this very thing in the US and does it abroad. So it's not really a, a leap in um, function or, or theory to have the post office office involved. And there's a variety of things the post office can do. It could offer just savings accounts, checking accounts, um, remittance, uh, check cashing, uh, or um, lending. And and that uh, latter, I think, is a more controversial proposal, but one that, that I think makes a lot of sense. So that's basically it. Well, it's a fascinating uh, story. Obviously, the uh, the banking industry and the healthcare industry are, are radically different, and and to pretend they are too similar is, is just silly. But just reading through the book, the number of times I found a health parallel or a health intersection uh, surprised me. But I, I note, for example, that the very first story that you start the book with is health related. You refer to a single mother from uh, North Carolina who fell behind on her rent and utilities because 
her son needed emergency surgery and she didn't have health insurance. So there is quite well-established scholarship on the question of medical debt. I guess most of it is is sourced uh, a few years back from uh, the great Elizabeth Warren. But more recently, we've had important contributions from Sidney Watson, uh, Melissa Jacobi, uh, for example. Um, and I noted recently the Fed's released uh, a report on the economic well-being of U.S. households in 2015, which said that 46% of respondents uh, who had a major, major medical cost last year said they still had debt from that expense. Is health a really big part of the expense, the cost side of this ledger, um, or is it sort of just some of the noise uh, surrounding uh, uh, broader problems? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I, I think it's a huge uh, factor. Uh, one, because a lot of times th- the reason people go to these payday lenders you, you see in surveys over and over again is because they had some unexpected thing happen in their lives. And whether they use the loan to pay their rent to offset some of this other cost or they use the loan to pay for this other cost, you know, it doesn't show up exactly in surveys. And so it's a little bit confusing. But what are these other costs? So, you know, I always give the example of uh, healthcare because I think that's uh, the first or if not the second cost that comes up, right? Others are, you know, your car breaks down or or some other sort of, you know, sharp edge of life. But healthcare is is one of those things where I think um, it, the principle that the poorer you are, the more you pay for these services holds true there. Um, and it's it's such a common, unexpected expense. It's not something people plan for. Um, have a financial buffer to to cover, and and usually it it has to be paid, right? And and there's other things that are involved usually, right? So healthcare costs often come with loss of work or some other, you know. Uh, upset to your life. And so I think it's absolutely part of the, the situation. What really is, is a, there's a lot of people that are living without a financial buffer. And any expense that goes above and beyond what they their paychecks can cover ends up pushing them into this fringe lending sector or, or, or just off the ledge into bankruptcy or insolvency. Um, and healthcare certainly gets people there faster than any other thing. Well, thank you, Marisa. Yes, and I, I do agree with you. Like That is a huge issue in terms of unexpected expenses being the key to so many bankruptcies and healthcare being a big one. One of the things that I thought would be so interesting to discuss with you today is how the Affordable Care Act both helps alleviate this problem, but may also be setting us up for different versions of it. So in terms of alleviation, we all know that the ACA has helped spark a big fall, big drop in the number of people who are uninsured. But we've also seen great reporting by Elizabeth Rosenthal and and articles by folks like Alison Hoffman describing the phenomenon of underinsurance. And when I think about underinsurance, I think about this, uh, for example, many of the catastrophic plans or bronze plans with very high deductibles. Um, Someone could easily be uh, on the hook for several thousand dollars of healthcare expenses after being in financial straits that almost require them to pick the cheapest plan, which is often the one that has the lowest actuarial value. And I'm wondering, do you think that's going to be a very important area of future study or fixes for the Affordable Care Act? This question of are deductibles or other or co-insurance or co-pays skin is in the game, as they're often called in the uh, morbid uh, health economics uh, terminology. Is that actually going to exacerbate this uh, problem of uh, people needing payday lenders? 
I mean, absolutely. I think uh, insurance covers you from, you know, the abyss, I think, of, of finan- being so in over your head that you, you know, you have to declare bankruptcy. But often these copays um, can actually, you know, uh, they're like these soft cuts that can, can push you over. Also, because if you do need that $300 just to cover copays, that payday loan can, you know, uh, balloon into something like $3,000, right? So the insurance then becomes, you know, you're, you're, uh, offsetting one cost and then putting in another market and you're, you know, maybe the government is, is covering your insurance, but now you're paying payday lenders just because of the copays. And, and I don't say this as a theoretical thing. And, and I, I'm not obviously one of the underbanked or, or poor uh, Americans, but I had a recent, my daughter had an emergency surgery over a Christmas break. We are fully insured. Um, by the university, so not the Affordable Care Act. And we ended up having several thousand dollars in bills. Um, luckily, you know, I had the money to pay it off without having to go to a payday lender. And so, 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 you know, I mean, but to someone that's on the margin, the difference between, you know, $500 to, you know, $30,000, I mean, I know that that sounds different, but $500 can, can sink someone on the margin. And so, yes, I mean, I think we really need to make sure that we're covering them so that they don't have to then go to some other market um, to pay these copays. That, and that other market just ends up being so expensive and hard to get out of. Yes. And here's an area where I would love to ask your perspective on something that I like to call the evolution versus revolution paradigm. So we have a lot of, uh, one of the themes of the Health Law Professors Conference a few weeks ago was, you know, there are, there are many establishment figures who really focused on changing the Affordable Care Act, regulating insurance better. But then there were others who said, look, this has to be a public utility, you know, um, or we have to move towards something like uh, a Medicare for all. And I think when I think of your scholarship, Marza, I think there's this simultaneously you deeply inv- engage with the existing banking regulation. You understand it so deeply, you critique it so well. And I tend to interpret your uh, look at the postal banking or your advocacy for it as sort of an effort to say, we really can't keep adding band-aids to this existing system. We have to think of something totally different. With that in mind, I'm wondering, you know, do you think that, my first question is, do you think I've read that correctly, these parallels between health and and the finance sectors? And secondly, I'm wondering um, if you might be able to comment on the new hospital as lender model, where apparently some hospitals are saying, oh, you don't need to go to payday lenders, you just come to us and we'll give you a loan for the services we provided. Great, great questions. Let me take the, the, the second first. The hospital as lender, I think, is interesting because I think we're also seeing employer as lender. And and I think that, um, you know, or like Walmart as lender, right? So the place that you shop. And, um, and, and I think that there's this sense in the marketplace that the lending options are not adequate for a certain market. And that market is a small loan sort of, you know, uh, not that the, these are loans that banks aren't offering. They're small, short term, perhaps, you know, up to six months to a year, but they're uncollateralized, right? So there's nothing, there's no house, there's no car um, that you can collect. And and this is a market that's going to have some sort of, you know, uh, change or evolution at some point. And hospital as lender is, is interesting. I mean, I, I think there are some real conflicts here. Um, but also, look, I mean, I, I think any, any new entrant that could come in and drive down the costs of these other lenders is is welcome. Um, but, you know, cautiously, because I think some of these hospitals now are just these, uh, just as big and as, as powerful as as banks. And, and I worry a little bit about what that model looks like if we're 
tying, you know, lending decisions to healthcare. On the question of sort of revolution or evolution, I mean, I think it's it's funny, right? When I talk to some of my banking colleagues um, about banking law, I I find myself really kind of a, a realist among them, right? So even proposing postal banking, I think everyone's like, this is radical and it is a public utility model. I do see it as a public utility. Um, but a lot of my banking colleagues um, want to change the entire system, right? So so at least what, what I'm saying is, look, there is this there is this gap in the system. So you all banks keep doing what you want, but let's plug this gap and, and you're not willing to do it um, we've tried to sort of entice you through carrots and sticks and all sorts of legislation. So let's just have the government do it. So I see a public option, but a limited market here. Um, you know, I think a lot of my colleagues would say that the whole banking system is, is you know, is a house of cards. It's built on sand. I, I tend to agree with them. So let's blow the whole thing up and start again. And again, I'm, I'm a deep sort of realist. I don't, um, I, I love revolution in theory, but I sort of, I lived through one in my country of birth and I like slow, uh, you know, slow change. So, so I think this, I see this as a really small, obvious, not terribly revolutionary fix. Again, we did this, lots of other countries do it, uh, and we're talking about small loans. Um, but as far as, you know, trying to get the market to fill this gap, I, I think we've tried that enough. I really don't. I, I think we're, when we're talking about, um, you know, 30, 40 years of this void developing, and the only market entrants that have been able to compete are those, the payday lenders, the fringe lenders, um, I think it's time to, to to plug that gap through a, a public utility option, as you say. And I think it is a lot like the healthcare debate, as, which I followed somewhat. But I think, you know, I, the question was, do you overhaul the system and make it right all, all sort of uniform and, and consistent? And there's a beauty to that. But there's also just such a huge fight. So I, I understand the uh, and appreciate the point about the public option. But of course, as your book carefully uh, details, we've sort of been there a little bit before with credit unions, savings and loans, local and community banks, not public, but more, if you like, publicly or socially oriented. Yet they clearly fell victim, as you uh, tell us, to the transformation of banking brought about by um, uh, modern deregulation. You, There's a great phrase in the book, uh, quote, the poor may need banks, but banks most definitely do not need the poor. Unquote. And I, it, that was another point that resonated uh, with me because uh, more and more, uh, as we know, health insurers really don't want the sick to be in their right. pools. <laughs> um, and the whole idea of, of sort of the future type of, uh, of model, I think, does depend a lot on how we view the social contract. You've already talked a little bit about that. But you talk about the asymmetric erosion of the social contract during a time of deregulation. And it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on that, uh, given the context of the highly regulated industry uh, that is uh, U.S. healthcare. Um, sure. Uh, a note on the credit union and, and SNL. I, the reason why I go into that history is not, I mean, I think I, I, I got so sick of, I w would go to so many of these conferences about, you know, lending to the poor, banking to the poor. And I mean, everyone consistently was, well, credit unions will do it. You know, no one's saying SNLs will do it, but that, you know, 10 years ago, they would have. Um, but credit unions become this sort of, you know, silver bullet, they're going to fix everything. And, and, and I, I want, I wanted to go through that history to show 
one, why credit unions were able to do it. And and one is because they were, you know, they were innovative, they were they were able to overcome high interest for the poor um, through a, an innovation that worked phenomenally well for the 1900s. And then they were successful because the government fully supported them with insurance and with, you know, a big infrastructure that allowed them to operate with much lower costs, huge tax breaks, et cetera. Um, but credit unions don't count work right now because the way their innovations that were well-suited for the uh, 1900s aren't well suited for now, right? It was, and and they actually rejected that innovation, right? The mutual bond of having, you know, if you know each other, you don't have to charge as much interest. That doesn't work these days because credit unions are basically just as big as banks. So, so I think you know you can look at the past and say, well, that was a model. Let's learn from it, and and not say, well, let's do that model again. And I, I want to, you know, make. I don't think it's splitting hairs to say, you know, yes, the credit union is, was good, and let's take the the idea and the spirit of it and and apply it to something else. Um, and as far as uh, healthcare, um, the the analogies here, I mean, the the deregulation of the banking industry. Um, was certainly um, lopsided in that banks decided that they wanted no social responsibilities. And I think the government also thought that they were washing their hands of it, right? So, so I think at the time, it seemed like it was not lopsided, right? I think the bank said, well, we want the government off our backs. And the government said, we want to get off your back. So you go and make money. And then, you know, it'll trickle down somehow and you'll pay us. But lurking behind it is just this not this this lie that the government could ever stay out of business. Banking. And I think we saw that in 2008, right? And that was very clear. And that's why we have this backlash now saying, okay, well, something's, something's off. Um, it is still very highly regulated, though, just like healthcare. Um, banking is not, has never been like, you know, other corporations. And I think just like healthcare, there is this sense of trust. And, and I think probably more in healthcare, but we're dealing with, I mean, on the one hand, people's lives in the hands of an institution that is trying to protect them. But on the other hand, and not that insignificantly is people's life savings, right? People's pensions, people's livelihoods, all the work that they've done. And so you have two institutions here that um, we need to trust completely, and um, we are at their mercy in some situations. Um, you know, specifically in banking, banking is so complex, and so we outsource this uh, understanding of the system to these government regulators. And I think to some extent we do with drugs as well, and with um, you know uh, all the workings of you know the, the the scientific innovations in medicine. We say, okay, well, someone will protect us from the the you know uh, profit or oriented, um, you know, exploiters that that would benefit from and us lose. And I think both of these are very similar conceptually in that way, right? I think um, we really have this sense that healthcare providers and bankers, even though I think maybe that people would sort of roll their eyes at that one, have public duties. Um, they owe some sort of fiduciary duty or some sort of ethical um, duty to uh, those whose lives or money that they uh, take on and, and profit from. I really appreciate that mention, uh, Marisa, of the difficulty of understanding these fields, because I think that is something that's constantly underestimated. I really appreciated your um, conversation, I think a few weeks ago on Bitcoin, where there were some people who were saying, well, the solution is just we need to have things like Bitcoin, which will radically cheapen the cost of trust and intermediation and banking money. 
and just let the poor have, uh, or let people who are unbanked buy into these cryptocurrency, alternative currency systems. And, you know, it's interesting that in healthcare, we have very similar uh, pushes for things like the mole app and sort of uh, innovations that would say bring people healthcare on their phones. The question that I was sort of wondering that I think might tie these together is this idea of credence goods. Um, you know, we t talk a lot in healthcare about the fact that it's really hard for the layperson to understand whether they've gotten optimal care. And I'm wondering, do you think there's something similar about banking regulation where it's just, you know, when people are dealing with all of the paperwork for mortgages or for the, the hidden fees and other sorts of traps and contingencies that are so common in low level bank accounts, that it's just very difficult, even for the best behavioral economists, to nudge people toward optimal behavior because their lives are busy and it's hard to understand all the bells and whistles of these different types of uh, so-called products. Oh, absolutely. I mean, two things. I think I think that the thing with banking and healthcare is that we don't have the stomach for market discipline, and 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 rightly so. Like we don't have the what 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 market discipline looked like, um, or the nudges of the market, or the you know the invisible hand in two thousand and eight would be everyone lose their pensions. We'll start from scratch. That's market discipline, and we don't we don't want that, right? We we want the government to come in with their you know um, all the weapons they have, print money if you will. Don't. Do this. Same with um, healthcare. Yes, I think that that is a real problem in terms of, you know, it seems as though there's a simple initial answer that involves people sort of taking on risk and being responsible for it. But then, you know, there's not many people who are going to answer the question of the debate. Do you let the person who's uninsured die in the emergency room? You know, fortunately, yeah. that's kind of a good thing. Exactly. Absolutely. I think we have ethical, moral, sort of evolutionary, we're going to, you know, protect our own reasons why we don't want this. The other thing with banking and market discipline is that market discipline is erratic in banking, right? So you have runs. Uh, it's not clean market discipline. We say, oh, this bank is going to fail. So everyone's going to go get their deposits. Now, maybe that bank wasn't going to fail, but now it is, you know? Uh, um, and so we have a high regulation in this market to allow the market to function. So we have to understand that, you know, that not those rules, those theories um, don't apply to every industry in exactly the same way. And I think that was the the big flaw in banking. It, moreover, um, there was this misunderstanding about shadow banking, right? So shadow banking at these derivatives markets, these very complex trades that looked like they were all accounted for, right? So they balanced, they were hedged. When there was one winner, there was a, another loser. So it didn't seem like it was a place that where regulation needed to do anything because, you know, it all worked itself out among contracting parties. Turned out that system was also runnable and it did suffer a run. And so we have the shadow banking sector that is also irrational. And we say, okay, now we need to take a look there. But as far as... Uh, your first question about, you know, we call in the banking world fintech or financial technology. And I, I'm also, I gave this big, you know, presentation at the treasury and, you know, 90% of the people wanted to talk about fintech as the solution to banking the unbanked. And, and, and I, and I think we've got to come back to this understanding of what, what we're talking about, right? Um, banking is the, the people who are unbanked don't lack for faster, smoother, um, right? Transactions. What they need is a safe place to keep their money that is cheap. Um, so it's not going to cost, you know, cost them overdraft fees and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that fintech won't completely revolutionize 
decentralized banking, it likely will. We will all likely live in a much faster, more efficient banking world and lower, you know, information costs and all of that. But um, there is that, like we were talking about trust element, this using other people's money. And, and some of these things are things that technology um, can't overcome. I mean, we've had the same banking problem since banking was invented, which is the run, right? Um, or, you know, uh, speculation or bubbles and busts, right? We have these things that um, no matter what economy we live in, there are these endemic problems to banking. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, fintech will certainly change the way we bank, but it won't change the fundamental idea of people putting their money into a bank and that bank lending it out to others to create more money. That has been con- phenomenally consistent. One of your observations is that, as often is the case with banking, necessary uh, structural reforms uh, depended upon there being a really good crisis. And some people are arguing that with healthcare costs uh, beginning to stare upwards at 20% of our GDP, that, that maybe it's time to start being a little more skeptical about uh, market approximations in the healthcare space and go after direct regulations such as as, as price regulation. And of course, uh, something of a coda to your book, although uh, obviously you wrote it uh, after the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau had come into being, but only recently did we see the payday loan, MPRM. And both that and I think within the same week, we had Google's announcement that they were going to stop showing some payday loan advertising and so on. So could you sort of bring us a little bit up to date uh, on sort of the regulation side? Oh, um, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so the CFPB, um, and it shouldn't, I mean, it shouldn't be underestimated how big of a deal it is, um, although I will undercut it in just a little bit. Um, the, the big deal here is that this is the first national regulation of payday lending. Um, so far, it's been sort of state by state. Um, I mean, there have been, you know, federal legislation that apply to payday lenders, like truth and lending and things like that. But generally, interest rate regulation and product regulation has all been state by state. And the problem here, of course, was that there's this cat and mouse game or whack-a-mole, whatever you want to call it, where one state would, you know, have a ban, the state next door would have no ban, and everyone would migrate to the state next door and then lend to any state they wanted. And so it's been a real problem of um, sort of regulating this industry. And so the CFPB came out with uniform rules that apply or, or will apply to every lender um, in the country. Um, and so so I think this is a huge step. And I think it means that we're going to see more from the CFPB and that the lenders will have to change their models um, to deal with these rules. And, and they're big rules um, in that they aren't, um, you know, they have to make sure they're not able to lend to anyone anymore. They have to do some underwriting. So far, uh, payday lenders have done no underwriting, meaning anyone that comes in can get a loan, but you just have to pay a lot for it. As long as you have a paycheck and a bank account, you can get a loan. Um, now you have the payday lender has to assure that the person has an ability to pay back. So that you know creates a, a speed bump for them, and, and they're able to to underwrite um, some other good uh, good things like they can't you know uh, withdraw from their account without warning them. Um, so what was happening before is not only were you paying these exorbitant fees to the payday lenders to take out these loans, but they kept sort of drawing and overdrawing on your account if you couldn't pay it back, and so your bank was charging 
processing you fees. So you're paying on both ends and these rules have minimized that. Although they can still do it, they have to warn you first. And so you can deal with it with your bank if you need to. Um, so, so I think all these rules are great. Um, the problem I think is that there is a lot of demand for these loans. And this is what the payday lenders are saying, um, is that these loans meet a demand. These are poor people that need the money. And so where are they going to go? And I'm sympathetic to that argument. There are, there is a huge demand for these loans and regulating it, um, is one step, but it's got to be the next step has to be providing alternatives. And I think the CFPB is, seemed open to that by in saying, look, you know, you can do this type of loan or this type of loan, low interest or installment loan. Um, but they're leaving it to the market to fill that void. And, and, and again, hopefully someone will, but, you know, obviously I'm a proponent of let's, let's have the, the public option do it. And so I think these are the, these are a start, at least the country's paying attention. And the Google thing, I mean, I think that's interesting too. I mean, I think Google, um, you know, is taking a, a stand against these lenders, which is great. Um, I wouldn't be surprised though, if Google um, wanted to, to enter this field, not, not as an unscrupulous payday lender, but as a small lender. And I think they could do it. I mean, I think I've said, you know, um, in the book, you can overcome interest in one of two ways, right? You can, you can do it through scale, right? So you've got Walmart or a U.S. post office model where we're selling a bunch of different things. You're in our store. And so we don't need to charge you as much because we've covered the overhead. Or you can do it through better underwriting. So we're distinguishing between those those low-income folks with bad credit scores, those who can repay $500 versus those who can't because a FICO score is too blunt of a tool to differentiate between those people. And someone like Google, on the other hand, could come in and say, okay, well, you know, we have this model that predicts your um, ability to repay. Now, obviously, we're worried about that, you know, um, for a variety of data reasons and privacy and and whatever, but is that something that a lot of people are considering? Sure, I, mean, I get calls constantly from these you know fintech um, startups that are working on creating this these databases that will um, have fine tuned underwriting. So my final question, I guess, for our uh, conversation today. Marza, is I'd like to, well, first of all, I have to say something about the scoring because I've written so much about it with articles like The Scored Society and other things, which is I would, I'll try to add to the show notes this report from Upturn, which is uh, Harlan Yu and David Robinson on the rise of alternative credit and what they call fringe alternative data in scoring models. And I think it is really interesting and it's something that healthcare is going to have to face as well in terms of like medication adherence scores that also FICO does uh, and the increasing role of scoring in healthcare. I am still trying to figure out exactly what I uh, make of it because I've critiqued the FICO score, but I, and, and I on one level want to welcome these new alternatives, but on the other, I'm a little scared of uh, the black box aspect. Um, but my final question, I think, is going to be something where a, a horizon of regulation I just would love to get your thoughts on, which is we're seeing in England now uh, intergenerational mortgages, people who are younger people in their 20s and 30s trying to get a foot on the property ladder. Housing prices are going up so fast that they've got to get some help from their family, and then the whole collective entity ends up um, on the hook for the debt. Um I'm wondering if in a realm where healthcare, there's going to, if there's going to be rationing and if there's going to be certain things that aren't paid by either public or private payers, if we think that potentially the financial markets are going to move in with, say, intergenerational loans where people can, the children of, adult children of parents, their parents might need expensive care, they can agree to have a mortgage for that care. 
Do you think that's an area where we're going to see the similar rhetoric or rhetoric similar to that that we see with the payday lenders where they say, look, if we don't get to the payday, payday loan, someone may miss out on vital medical care? Um, or do you think it's an area where it just the arrangement overall just seems so troubling that there will be preemptive regulation of this type of effort to put whole family entities on the hook for medical bills? Gosh, that's scary. I had never even heard of that. I mean, I, honestly, I think, like, in, in in some ways, we're really moving toward, like, a feudalistic society if we're doing that, right? I mean, we're talking about, we're already re, rethinking, we're redoing debt prison, right? Um, we Where people are serving time for their unpaid debt. And, and if this is happening, I guess we've got, you know, families that are indebted, right? I mean, I, what, I, 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 I think I think our democracy is inconsistent with that kind of financial arrangement, but it does come to a moral decision. And I think that is something I keep trying to come back to in the book is like, there's these aren't these rules that are just out there. Like there aren't just like, you know, like this econ- like plat- this platonic form of the economy. And we just got to kind of figure out what it is. Like we create that. Um, and so I think, sure, if they say, well, people need these. And, and so we're, we're the only market provider. Um, and we're going to make this this killing off of these intergenerational intergen- loans. I think we can all say, well, if people need these, then we should figure out a way for them to, to do this or, or not need them. Right, that that wouldn't put their kids on the hook. I, I I certainly hope that we're not headed toward there. And I was going to mention actually your black black box book. I mean, because I think really we are headed into this idea that data can fix everything. Um, specifically in my field, like we just need better. Uh, scoring uh, of these things and and I've um you know haven't done any work I'm obviously relying on yours but I think that that can't be the only way forward and on the uh, note of Frank having a book <laughs> that was this week's the week in health law a special thank you to our latest wonderful honorary health law professor professor Baradaran uh, you can find her uh, on Twitter at M-E-H-R-S-A-B-A-R-A-D-A-R-A-N. Super fun having you Thank with you us. so much for having me. It was a really great discussion. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting and not indebted healthy week.